The biggest thing about a successful night is repeat business. If you have a really, really good night, um, people will come back. And what I do at a lot of my bigger clubs is I do a two pound discount if they book on the night for the following month. And I, some nights I get two thirds of the audience will book for the following month um, because they know it's a great show. And also they don't care who's on because they know it's always going to be a good show. So if you put a good lineup on, um, they'll, they'll keep coming back to it. But obviously also open mic level, if you're going to do an open mic sort of show, you've got to put on good open mic acts. You've got to look at the videos. If you just put your mates on, whether they're good or not, you're going to have a bad show. I mean, you can t if you're putting seven or eight acts on, you've got to make sure that at least five of them are going to be good. You know, people will tolerate on a cheap night or two acts dying, but if five or six die, it's going to be a terrible night that no one wants to come back to. And if they're just there as hostages because to support their mate and everyone's terrible, it's going to be an awful night that no one wants to come back to. So, you know, really, I would say try and set up a gig, you know, get a couple of acts on that maybe are new that will bring some friends along, but don't force them to do it um, and get, you know, four or five acts that are good and get a headliner on that's decent. So even if it means, I mean, in London, you can get a good headliner for, you know, 30 quid or something. Um, but just make sure the night ends on a high with a strong 15 or 20 minute act to close it. So even if you've had a couple of deaths, the night ends on a high. Um, hello everyone and welcome to the Marvin's World podcast. A podcast where we speak to tantalising and fantastic people where they help people like you and me make what we love a full-time job. If you like the podcast, give us a review on iTunes and share it with your friends. If you don't like it, don't tell anyone and keep it quiet. <laughs> uh, today, we have an amazing guest. He's called Spiky Mike. He, he runs clubs across the country. And if you, whatever comedian you've seen on TV, He's probably performed with them or hosted them on his show. He has over a decade's worth of experience in the comedy circuit. And whatever you want to know about comedy, he's your man. <laughs> How are we doing, Spiky Mike? <laughs> I'm good, thanks, Marvin. So how are, you, how are you doing today? What's, what's been going on and like, how you been keeping? <laughs> Well, I've got two small children, including a six-month-old baby. So that's kind of um, made lockdown a bit uh, uh, less boring than it would have been otherwise. And it, it's actually the timing worked out quite well because uh, it's kept me at home a lot more than I would have been. So um, in terms of good timing to have a baby, it's probably was the best timing of all. It seemed quite a nerve-wracking thing to have to do to go into hospital during lockdown with COVID, but actually it's worked out quite well. And uh, you know, having having far fewer shows than normal, it's 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 kind of been all right. But I mean, like every comedian is say, whenever anything exciting or like like something happens, it's always material. Yes, it uh, it's just we haven't got anyone to perform it to. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. No, I mean, I've done a fair few gigs actually. I did about. I did about half a dozen. I ran about half a dozen online ones and Zoom gigs. And then over the summer, we did quite a few outdoor shows. And then sort of September, October, we did, we did quite a few socially distanced indoor shows. Uh, now, obviously, the last month or so, we've not been able to do any, any real live shows. And I've not done any, any Zoom ones this, this lockdown, but I probably will start doing them again if the lockdown goes on much longer, yeah. which hopefully it won't. It's quite a sort of a mixed bag in the moment with a lot of comedians. Like some comedians say, oh, I'm never going to do Zoom again. And you've got others sort of going straight into it. And you have other comedians saying, oh, I'm not going to do TikTok. And you have others sort of going straight into it. And it's sort of a mixed bag. And then you hear comedians like Steve Hofstetter say, you know, this is a situation we are in. Adapt. And what I say to that, Mike, is yes, what are your thoughts? I think you should. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've quite enjoyed the gigs I've done. Um, I, I think the Zoom one, particularly, if you've got a little bit of a live audience, it's, it's okay. You know, it's better than, better than nothing. 
Um, it's not like a proper gig, but as long as the tech's okay. I mean, this is, this is one thing I don't like about organizing them. And it's quite stressful as an organizer because you never quite know if the tech's going to be all right. Although the tech generally has improved, you still don't know for certain. Sometimes, you know, connections can drop even though you think yeah, everything's fine and, you know, yeah, connections drop. Okay. And that's, that's stressful when you're running it and you've got hundreds of people watching you. Okay. Yes. I'm in the podcast, but I'm talking to my, they're my parents over there. <laughs> I've had that. I'm sorry about that. That's happened a few times. <laughs> uh, I had a few, I, I was in France. That's the other problem with Zoom gig. If you have a, that's the other problem with Zoom gig. If you've got a live audience that uh, people will, you know, open a bag of crisps and start chewing on it or the, or the dog suddenly walks in and starts barking and uh, that sort of stuff. That makes uh, <laughs> makes a bit of a challenge. <laughs> yeah, I had I had one where um, this guy's daughter kept on popping in, <laughs> and she kept on saying, "Daddy, could you show me this?" <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, yeah. they add a bit of spice. Yeah, that's a uh, problem with having a live audience on Zoom. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yes. Yeah, so, you were saying about sort of like as long as the tech's okay and like like it's good but then again it only takes one little thing like if someone's got crappy wi-fi in starbucks then and they're doing your set on your show boom yeah yeah that's that is a worry i mean to me um i think if you're booking a zoom show don't book the funniest comedians book the ones with the best broadband <laughs> that's true yeah maybe See, now you've got to balance it a bit <laughs> Ooh, that, that, that brings me to an interesting question because like you, you've you've been in comedy for a very long time and like there's a lot of things that you've obviously picked up over the years and the question that i'd like to ask you and this is just a general question in terms of comedians that are very talented what would you say is a common trait of them? Because I have sometimes I've found that comedians that the most funny don't bother with it as much. But then you get comedians that are good but nowhere near the level. But they, you know, they work their butt off and then they make it all over the place. And my question is, do you know? Well, working hard is massively important. It doesn't matter how talented you are if you are not prepared to you know in the early days particularly go to Plymouth on a wet Wednesday night for no money to do an open spot uh, you're not gonna make it you've got to put those miles in get around and gig 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 I mean I, Sarah Millican did quite a few of my gigs in the early days when she was a newer act and you know she was just completely relentless with her work ethic she was you know she traveled anywhere and everywhere and after every gig she'd be you know, carefully going through a set and, you know, analyzing things and always looking at new things to write. And uh, it's, you know, that, that kind of, you've got to have that kind of real drive. I think one, another thing I, I, you know, I've been debating this recently, what takes acts to the real high level? And I think when you get to an arena level act, likability is massively, massively important. I think pretty well every arena act has just got something about them that people like never mind actually how funny they are that the people have to actually like them and if 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 an actor's got real likability then people will laugh at them even if they're saying something that isn't that funny they've just got that audience that likes their personality and i think that is something that you know you can't you can't work on so much on likability if you've just got that sort of magnetic charisma and charm people warm to it and obviously then if you're very funny on top of it, you've got the full package. One thing that I come across a lot, like Hills Jago, she says star quality, but like you, you've, you've, I mean, with Edinburgh viewers like Steve Bennett and like yourself, like you've been in comedy for so long that like you, you can, it, it would probably take something really to surprise you or like really wow you. And I'm guessing like how often does that happen where you see an act that's like, Oh my God, I've never seen anything like that before. 
Um, well, I'm not sure the about never seen anything like that before, but every now and then you do get an act that, that you can just see the audience loves them and you know they're destined to higher levels. And Simon Lomas from Manchester, who very, very unusual deadpan, very deadpan act. And he was, you know, a couple of years ago, he was smashing all the new act competitions. And, you know, every time I put him on, the reaction from the audience was like, wow, this act can go to a, to a higher level. And, and Lindsay Santoro from Birmingham is an act who I've been really, really reading about for the last year or two. And I, I believe one of the major agencies is, uh, is trying to sign her at the moment. And some, she's one of those actually that's got that real kind of likability that audiences are warming to before she's actually said something really funny, but she's just got natural funny bones. And there's not that many people, that's quite a rare thing, who've got that kind of Tommy Cooper Thing about them where people are laughing almost without you having said anything funny. Simon Lomas pauses a lot and he gets people laughing at his pauses where he's literally saying nothing. And if you've got that, that is the real kind of funny bones thing that if you've got funny bones, you've got a massive head start on someone who relies entirely on his material. Gary Delaney, I remember saying to me a few years ago that he knows he hasn't got the sort of natural charisma that certain acts have got and he knows he's got to write great material um, and of course he has written loads of great material and actually he's, he's, he's also developed persona yeah. considerably from what it was in the earlier days but he you know he, he said that he, his material is everything and his material is of course absolutely phenomenal which has really helped take him to, to a high level. Is you, you you can't explain it. You just you just sense like when you see an act that when they have something, you just you just know. You get a gut feeling. Yeah. Well, I think there are some people who don't have the natural talent. They don't have the funny bones, but they can get to a level. They're not going to get to an arena level, but they can certainly. I think there are people who they might not have natural funny bones, but if they keep working, keep gigging, keep writing they can get to a certain level. And I've seen people in the early days who I've thought, you know, maybe seen the gong show when they first started, and I thought, you know, they've really got nothing about them. And then a couple of years later, you know, they've, they've got to a, you know, paid level. And they've just done it by gigging hard and, and writing hard. And, have, you know, it is possible to get, get to that, to a certain level by working hard and writing hard without necessarily having that, sort of real natural talent but then you know some people you know not everyone is it's, it gives you a massive advantage if you've got those natural funny bones etc but it doesn't necessarily you know if you if you if you if you've got natural funny bones but you're not prepared to do all the traveling and doing all the gigging you still won't won't get somewhere you've still got to work hard if you're going to make it regardless of your talent levels you're not going to if you just gig twice a week it doesn't matter how funny you are, you're, you're, you're never going to make it to a high level. And so what, what would you say has been a mo who's, what's been a moment in terms of your 20 years in running gigs where you've seen an act and like, what's, what's been the most surprising thing you've seen happen? Like, cause you've been so long, you must have a lot of mad moments with acts. And what's what's been on the flip side of that, where you see someone do like, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> I think when you did your gong show and you get oh, dropping God. all your props. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> good. <laughs> about five years ago, and uh, I, think, I think just about everything that could have gone wrong in your set went wrong. And <laughs> yeah. I remember you 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 were. You were doing a magic trick, and you and you you, you dropped the stuff, and it was uh, it was it wasn't it was just like really it was like almost anything that could have gone wrong could have gone wrong, and it was it was it was funny, but not for the right reasons for you. But uh, <laughs> hey, yeah, that you know, I don't think anyone's not had bad gigs, but when you do magic, then obviously you've got a lot more potential for things to go wrong than someone who's just doing stand up. Yeah, it, well, it's it's a funny sort of thing. Oh, that's that with the magic act thing. That's something I did. I wanted to try and do a bit of street performing. So I, and I did some magic and sort of stand up gigs. And then when I failed with it, it seemed to go quite well. Right. 
So it, that's that, and that's that's why I kept him. <laughs> but Tommy Cooper did right. I was getting much wrong, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. With with Gong, it's, I've had a lot of funny stories in Gong shows. It's I think I'm. I mean, like, you've run Gong shows for a while, and like from what I see of them, like you've really got to get on the ball quickly. There's no sort of chances. You've got to like like. And I think one of the things that a lot yeah. of comedians do, a lot of quick, sharp one-liners, and then they can go through the other things. But if you haven't gotten with that, then you may as well forget it, I feel. Well, you need to get a good laugh in the first 30 seconds to trust, so the audience will trust that you're a good, good comedian. I think once you've shown them that you can get laughed, they'll then stick with you a bit more. But if you haven't had a good laugh in the first minute, then you're, you're going to be uh, struggling. I think it's one of the hardest things in comedy is to start a gig badly and pull it round. If, if, if an audience hasn't gone with you in the first five minutes and then you can still turn a gig round, that's, that's a real achievement. It's something you very, very rarely see. But just once in a while, you know, I've had an act maybe booked for a 20 minute spot and after five minutes, the audience hasn't gone for it at all. You think, oh my God, this is going to be a long, long, long 20 minutes. But they've maybe change tack, start bantering with an audience, try a different style, and eventually have won it round. And that, that, that is really one of the toughest things I think you can do in comedy, pull, pull a gig round from when an audience didn't really like you to then make them like you. Okay. And this may be a bit of a layered question, but how do, what would you suggest for different types of acts to do? So if they're like a real surreal cabaret act and they're going like that, what could they do to sort a situation out? And if they're like a one-liner act or if they're like a Jack Whitehall type of act, how would they well, sort a difficult situation out? Well, now that is a tricky one. If you are an act that only does one-liners and an audience doesn't go with one-liners, um, then it's, um, it's harder. One, one thing I've noticed over the years is women are much less keen on pun one-liner acts generally than men are. Um, I remember Gary Delaney once telling me that on the, he, on, the, on the analysis of his videos online, I think 96% of the viewers were male. And um, I've noticed that <laughs> with one-liner acts. So that, that can be... And Gary told me actually that when he used to do regular club gigs, if it was a mostly female audience, he would invariably have a bad gig um, because they they are much less keen on one-liner kind of acts. So you know, you the, the the acts that have the ability to change their setup, you know, they can flip, you know, go into audience banter, or they can you know go to stories, or they can go to more sexual material or more cleaner material. Those are the acts that can really do well. Deliso Chaponda is one act who I find is absolutely brilliant at that. I've seen him play, you know, to real nicey, polite Radio 4 theatre crowds and smash it. And then I've seen him closing rowdy, drunken, drunk jonglers gigs and do very sexual material and absolutely smash it. And if you have that ability, also, you know, maybe an act that will, will swear it to a late night club gig, but then be completely clean to a different kind of gig. Uh, um, that kind of, if you have that ability to, to switch your material um, for the audience, play to the room you've got, then you're going to do much better than an act that just has that, that standard 20 minutes that they'll play to whoever they're playing come hello high water. Uh, what, now with a sort of a pro comedian, I don't know, someone like, who's a good example, like Philip Simon or like Robin Perkins, like, how, how how many minutes of material would you say they need to do so they can play different different sort of types of clubs? So like, do they need a full twenty minutes just some dirty well, material to play the the rough clubs? Well, yeah, you you kind of do. I mean, you know, there are some acts that can, you know, that their their material pretty well works universally, um, but. You know, I, I think most acts would want a bit of variation because, you know, particularly a drunken late night Friday, Saturday night club, they tend to like pretty filthy stuff. Also, the other thing is thinking, you know, if people have had five or six pints, giving them stuff they've got to think about is not going to work. It needs to be pretty direct, clear, obvious stuff. 
um, for them to get it. Whereas, you know, your, your polite Radio 4 um, kind of crowd um, who are sober at a, you know, theatre gig, they maybe do want stuff that's a bit more clever and highbrow and requires a bit more thought. So it, it's hard to have material that will meet all those bases. So really, ideally, you want to have, you want to look at your set and think, actually, my, my rowdy late night crowd is not going to go with that, but they're going to go with this. And, you know, to have a bit of, you know, you, you pretty well want probably two separate sets or, or at least you might have 10 minutes that works with both audiences, but then another 10 minutes that, that you might want to switch depending on what audience you've got. And, and, and then what, what makes it harder, Delisa, someone like Delisa Chapanda, he's been on TV and like people would have seen a lot of his material. And then he has to recreate, doesn't he, in his position, he has to create new sort of, a whole new material for that sort of thing. You do, although actually, comedians are sometimes a bit overly paranoid about that. Because if you, then you, what you'll sometimes get is then they don't do that material because they think, oh, everyone's seen it. And then, then people will complain. They said, oh, you didn't do that routine. I really like that routine. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember actually um, Dominic Woodward, who's, uh, you know, a very well-established pro act in the Manchester area. One of his jokes in his set went massively viral. I think it got put into a meme and shared like, tens of thousands of times and he was actually gutted because it was one of the biggest laughs he got in his set and he was saying oh, i won't be able to do it anymore and I, I just said to him no do it you you wrote that joke you're entitled to do it i said i'll be amazed if you see any difference in the reaction to it if some people have heard it before then they maybe they'll laugh slightly before the punchline or or whatever but he carried on doing it he said it went down just as well and i know he still now does it in his set um, so I, I don't think people always need to worry. I mean, you want to keep writing material anyway. Hopefully you write material is better than what you did previously. And I think also sometimes comedians, if they've been doing their, their same set for years, year in, year out, which I think in the old days of jonglers where lots of people just working jonglers all the time, doing 20 minutes, they were, a lot of acts were just trying out the same 20 minutes for years. I think you don't deliver it as well. If you lose your own enthusiasm for the material and it's like, oh my God, I've, to, I've said this joke 2,000 times, you're probably not going to say it with the same kind of enthusiasm as when you've only wrote it, you know, two or three weeks ago and it's fresh and exciting and you still find it funny. Um, who was it? I think, yeah, Tom Binns, uh, who does Ivan Brackenbury, he did uh, quite a few of my gigs in the summer in lockdown when he'd hardly done any gigs. And several times he did gags and he sort of laughed after them. And he sort of said, oh, I'd forgotten that some of my material is actually funny. <laughs> and he said, you know, normally he's doing like 20 gigs a week. And, you know, you kind of get sick of your own material. But he said, you know, he hadn't done it hardly for several months. And uh, so he was starting to find some of his jokes funny again. And uh, I think, yeah, people do need to keep writing um, to, you know, particularly if you're trying to build a following as well. Um, and obviously, if you're writing Edinburgh shows, you've got to, uh, you know, keep churning out new material. So, you know, people shouldn't get lazy, particularly now. I think, you know, there's more and more competition. We've had more and more, there are way more comedians than there ever used to be. Uh, way more comedians and way more clubs. So to stand out from the pack uh, and to build a following, you know, if you're building an online following and putting a lot of content out there, you've got to keep having fresh content. You can't just keep delivering the same, same stuff to, to, to your audience. Yeah, and that's that leads me into another question because, yeah. So, with with you being in comedy for twenty years, like you mentioned some of the changes already, but like, what what are some of the other changes you you you've seen that have changed in comedy over the years? And like, tell us a bit about your journey into being a comedian and a comedy promoter. Well, I first started going to comedy in uh, in Nottingham in the in the, about God, late eighties, early nineties. There was a club in Nottingham um, called the Laughter Cafe, and I remember Joe Brand playing there a couple of times. And um, I can't remember who else played there, but that lasted about a year. But then they they disappeared. And then shortly after, Just a Tonic opened in Nottingham in probably it was about ninety two, I think. And I went to every single Just a Tonic gig almost without fail, I think, unless I was at Glastonbury or something. I, I've hardly missed one for, for years, for probably 10 years. Um, and I saw loads and loads of acts. 
and then they did a new act competition. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll give it a go. And it was kind of okay, but I didn't really get that many laughs. I thought, I'm not doing it again until I'm, I'm better. And I didn't do another gig for about two years after that. And then I had a really amazing gig, which um, at the time I assumed it meant I was a natural comedy god. But actually, um, sort of a while later, I realised it was just that the compare was absolutely brilliant and really built the audience up to give me loads of support, which I would now do emceeing to acts, you know, for, for other acts to try and build them up. But um, at the time, you know, I, I got a really good reaction, which, you know, really, to be fair, was the compare that had, had done that. Um, but I got such a massive, massive buzz off of it that, you know, the week after that, I think Daryl gave me some phone numbers of various people who ran gigs. And what, I mean, God, this is one thing that's massively changed since then. Back in the, when, we, when this has been um, around about 20 years ago, when I started, all my first 10 gigs were, in, were on pro bills. My first one was at Just The Tonic. My second one was at Last Laugh in Sheffield with all pro acts. I remember doing one of Toby Jones's one in Leeds with like two or 300 people there and all pro acts. And I think nearly all my first 10 gigs, I mean, there was, there was hardly any gong shows um, and open mics didn't really exist. I think the, the, the Manchester, in Manchester, there was the, 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 the comedy balloon, which I think still runs for, for open mic acts, but it was nearly all pro gigs. So it was pro gigs with an open mic spot on there. And that was kind of the standard format that every club would have a five or 10 minute open mic spot. And you could get them easily. Whereas now, you know, there's acts doing a hundred gigs that can't get a pro, a slot on a pro bill. You know, you have to do gong shows and, you know, little open mic gigs to 10 people with all other open mics. And in London, the horrific uh, um, bringer gigs that the rest of the country just has their, uh, <laughs> has their mouths in disbelief that anyone runs those gigs. But you think of them in, in London, um, which, which to me sound absolutely horrific. Um, but yeah, that has changed. On the plus side, it means that once acts get onto a pro bill, they are actually going to be good enough for it. I mean, now most of the acts that get open mics are, are acts that are already starting. If I give an open 10 on a pro bill now, it's generally to acts that are already starting to get paid. Uh, whereas, you know, you could literally get on a pro bill with acts who've done tens of thousands of gigs when you've done about three yourself. So obviously you weren't going to look that good on that kind of bill. No. <laughs> In fact, I remember, I think my first London gig actually, I'd only done six gigs. And I, I did a Merck control gig and had to go on straight after Lee Matt. So that was, that was a, a gig where I, I think I died. <laughs> You're not going to come off looking good following no. Lee Matt when you've only done six gigs. <laughs> yeah, I used to hear that uh, Simon Anstall used to get really wound up when he used to have to come. Because I remember there used to be a comedy club before Angel and Eddie Izzard used to emcee it. And he used to complain whenever Eddie Inside would MC it because he would take away every bit of good energy from it. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that can actually be a problem if an MC is too good. Um, it, it can overshadow the acts. Um, I, I think that is something you don't really want. And if, if the MC is by, unless it's a new at night where you need a good MC, to hold it together and to get some laughs if acts die. But on a pro night, you don't really want the MC to be the best of the night. It sort of upsets the balance of the show. Yeah, the, the MC just needs to warm them up. Like if someone bombs, they just need to restore the faith really. And boom. The MC wants to be getting laughed, and, but most importantly, the MC wants to create, you know, a positive vibe, get everyone paying attention. Um, and get them in the mood to laugh and build up the acts and, you know, get, get them in a good mood. If, if all the acts are smashed, then the MC's done their job, really. Um, whereas if the MC does really, really well, but the acts don't do well, then, then something's gone a bit, bit wrong. Okay. And what do you think is going to happen now? with Because like, I hear so many comedians, like John Pendle, like one of the funniest comedians I've seen has given up and like a few others I've seen that I really like have gone. Well, I mean, 
obviously there's hardly any gigs going at the moment and consequently all the gigs are going to the biggest acts. I mean, I think just about every show I've run since lockdown, my headliners have been, you know, people like Hal Crund, Deliso, Deliso, Paul Sinner, because those are all, none of them are doing corporate work and they all, none of them are doing tour shows. So they're all a lot more available than they normally would be. And, and that's obviously filtered down and then meant that, that the, the lower end of the, of, of the, the circuit are really, really struggling to get gigs because there's probably 10% of the number of gigs going and the ones that are running can get very, very strong lineups. I mean, some of those people might come back to it, but obviously some people who were lower level pro acts have had to take jobs elsewhere to get, you know, to get by. And maybe some of them will think, will get jobs that they think actually, I think I prefer doing this than having to drive all over the country for not very much money. And some of them will will quit, or maybe some of them might do it part time and maybe just gig at weekends in their locality rather than trying to do a pro level. I think that's something. If people enjoy stand up, but they maybe can't make enough money from it, to to maybe just gig once or twice a week more locally can be quite a good solution. You get the enjoyment without maybe having some of the downsides of it. I think that's not a bad solution for some people. And what's yeah. Who knows what's going to happen, eh? Who knows? But I mean, I think one thing that might happen, maybe in two or three years, once this is all over, like there'll be a lot more audiences in comedy shows. People will be a lot more appreciative of the arts and like people that survive it will over maybe years afterwards will reap the benefits of it. Maybe things will change for the better. Possibly. You know, I don't think anyone can possibly predict how it will all pan out. Um, I, I mean, I'm sensing that people want entertainment and once, as soon as we run shows, I mean, in November, I had a load of shows booked that were all sold out. So people, you know, that's social distancing, so obviously not full capacities, but people were wanting entertainment and they, you know, with all this nonsense, they need cheering up more than ever. And with a kind of big recession we're going to have, people really will need cheering up. So I think stand-up will do fine. And um, I mean, one thing I found during the lockdown was that um, some venues that hadn't done comedy before were approaching me to do it because they were finding live music. You couldn't really do live music because people can't dance, they can't sing along. So they were live music venues returning to comedy and hopefully some of them would find, oh, actually comedy works really well and then stick with it after all this is out of the way. So I think there's certainly plenty of venues and I, th I think there will be work for people for sure once we get out of it. It's just Obviously, with the problem is that with the reduced capacities for some venues, it's not viable to do it. Uh, you know, I've I've got a venue in Southwell where I live, where we we had 120 capacity under social distancing that went down to 45 capacity. But then when they said no mixing of households, which then means you pretty well got all couples in your audience, it then went down to 32 capacity which really, you know, you can't make any money on that. That's just really doing it for the fun of it. But, you know, it will change. Hopefully by Easter, we'll be back to full capacities and then, you know, everyone can get back on if they want to. Mm. One thing I found quite interesting about that, it was a bit difficult to check if they've been to the same household. Because like, if you're going to say that and they didn't, they're going to say we are from the same household. And like, it'll be an extensive well, the check. The club I went to, they were told that they had to take reasonable precautions. So um, the pub I went to, you know, if they looked like they probably weren't in the same household, you know, you've got four, four middle-aged blokes turning up saying they're in the same household, that wouldn't look credible. So the pub would then say, well, I need you to sign a legal declaration to state your names and that you're all from the same household. And then it got them covered. <clears throat> You mentioned a bit before about like bringing gigs in London and I did a bit of research and I found that you were a former like music promoter and you, you paid 50 pounds for manic street preachers is that right? <laughs> yes um, weirdly my 18th birthday party ended up being a blueprint for my life um, it was a bit of a thing when I was at at, uh, in sixth form that everyone on their 18th birthday would hire the local nightclub um, and have a party and then sort of sell sell tickets and um, I did that but I, I had a band and I put my band on 
and the night went brilliantly. And so I decided I'd do it again every three months and then started booking other people's bands. And um, then a few years later, I moved up to Nottingham and I sort of decided, well, I'd carry on doing this. And uh, the Levelers, who were a band who I'd got to know really well when they were just playing in pubs, I got them to do their first big Nottingham gig uh, to 500 people at Nottingham Trent Polytechnic. Um, and um, their agent said to me, oh, we've just signed this new punk band that I think you'll really like. They sound like The Clash. Um, and they just cost you 50 quid and they're called the Manic Street Preachers. So um, I, <laughs> I had them on and, and they absolutely died a death. No one was clapping or anything to them. People sat on their floor with their backs to them and ignoring them. And uh, I remember paying them the 50 quid at the end of the show and um, saying to them, oh, never mind, I'm sure you'll do better gigs than this in the future not at that point envisaging that they would be headlining Glastonbury and Reading festivals in, uh, in sort of 15 years to come. So there's hope <laughs> for everyone. Anyone who's died at a comedy gig, you know, you've probably not died as much as the Manic Street Preachers did that night. So you could still be uh, headlining arenas or, or whatever. Hmm. And how, is, how, is, how did that sort of, what made you decide to become like a promoter and how did, running music gigs affect how you've been running sort of comedy shows? Well, um, I stopped running music gigs in Nottingham because I, I also DJ'd um, for many years. Well, I still DJ actually at Rock, Rock City in Nottingham, which is one of the biggest live music venues in the country. And I've DJed there for 30 years. Um, and then when I was sort of working with them, I was sort of helping advise the promoters there on bands to book. So I didn't really need to risk my own money um, with doing gigs. I just kind of would help them a bit with, with advice on apps, on gigs to book. So I didn't really promote, I more DJed. But then when I started doing comedy, there, there were a fraction of the number of clubs running. There were probably a tenth of the number of gigs running 20 years ago as there are now and lots of people generally advised the best way to get stage time was to set up your own gig so I um, went to a, you know a local venue in Leicester the Charlotte which was a live music venue and they had a little upstairs room and I asked to do a gig there and we did a monthly monthly club there and you know we just get about 15 20 people in there um, and there'd often be a live music, live band playing underneath it and you'd hear loads of bass coming up while you were on stage so it wasn't really the best venue but the reason I used it was because they had a big email list because of their bands and I thought that would be easier to get an audience if you got an email list because uh, there was no Facebook or social media then so getting an audience was much harder than it is now where you can you know quickly set up a Facebook group and Instagram and all this and tell people about it back then it was hard um, but yeah, so, so I did that and it went quite well. And then another club contacted me to do it. And, and the other thing was, I didn't, much as I, I quite like traveling for a gig once a week, but I didn't really want to be traveling to Plymouth and Hull and Newcastle like five days a week. And I thought, oh, if I'd run my own gigs within an hour of home, I can do lots of gigs without being away from, from home all the time. Ah. And it, it just kind of gradually snowballed. It wasn't really a plan to have an empire. It was just like, you know, another gig you would get offered and then you'd go to a club and you think, oh, this would be good for a comedy night. And it sort of gradually, gradually went from sort of one club in the year 2000 up to, you know, 10 clubs by 2005 and, you know, just gradually moving up and up. And it sort of got to the point of being sort of 40 or 50 clubs. And I, I really think I've got more than enough now. I, I don't really want to have any more. It's, it's a bit too, <laughs> gets a bit too much to cope with the admin. Oh my god! Yeah, how do you balance it all? Because like Jeff Whiting, he's run so many gigs across the country, and you, like that sort of number, like maybe a five a week is enough. But my god, that must be a nightmare. At times. Yeah, it is really because I'm quite perfectionist. So there's a lot of um, aspects of it I don't really like. I have got someone um, who does some admin for me about sort of fifteen hours a week. Um, but most pretty well everything else I do myself because, you know, things like booking the acts and various other things I, I kind of want to do myself. And it gets to the point of, oh, my God, you know, it's, it's a hell of a lot. So I'm kind of a bit more selective about the gigs I take now. 
before I took pretty well anything. And I love open mic gigs, I love gong shows, so I like having small gigs as well, but I've kind of got to the point where I think, well, I've got enough small gigs to, to where I can see act and help develop new talent. So I'm kind of more taking just bigger ones, but I I'm very much want to keep the smaller ones running as well, because, you know, developing the new talent is, is massively important and, and kind of more fun in some ways as well, because the acts are, you know, on the pro gigs, they're generally actually seen loads of times. I really enjoy having my Derby Blessington gig where I've normally got five or six acts on, many of whom I've never seen before. For me, it's more fun than a pro gig where I've, you know, seen everyone 10 times before. Yeah. So, I mean, what's, it's a, it's a, how do you balance relationship with acts? Like, I mean, because the, the, I was listening to a podcast with Simon Cain and like Julia Chamberlain, and they say, if you want to be this liked by comedians, run a gig. <laughs> how do you sort of, and also like, because you're running so many gigs, how do you maintain your level and maintain your relationship with comedians? Well, I mean, all the ones you book, they like you. <laughs> so I guess the ones who don't like me are the ones I don't book, because I don't really see them. Um, you know, hopefully uh, I haven't annoyed too many people. I mean, it's, it's impossible to book all the acts. I mean, there are some acts that are just not suitable for your clubs. Most of my clubs have kind of quite nicey, nicey middle-aged audiences in nice villages. And so I can't, so I can't really book sort of, really edgy offensive acts it was annoying actually because for several years i booked the comedy stage at download festival um which is like you know young heavy metal kind of fans and they loved really offensive um edgy acts so I, it was kind of a bit of a, a bit of a joke that, that every year i would be booking all the acts at download festival that i could never book for the rest of the year for any of my regular clubs um <laughs> unfortunately about three years ago they got their own in-house comedy department and they book it themselves now but for about seven years, I used to love it because there were loads of acts there that I really like, acts who I really liked and personally found very funny, but, you know, I would not be able to put into, you know, my, my nicey village gigs. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. It's just one of those things. There are some acts who are very good acts that I just don't think are right for the majority of clubs that I, I book for. You know, you tend to find that I don't specifically aim to have a certain sort of style, but it just seems that, most of the clubs I get seem to fit a certain style. I don't tend to have many clubs where you've got a young clientele. Most of them, it's, you know, middle-aged couples to, you know, that kind of demographic, really. Yeah. Do, do you mix in um, sort of cabaret shows or is it, are most of your shows sort of straight stand-up as a, as a whole? No, I, I love having a variety on the bill. So, if ever, whenever possible, I try and have one act on the bill that's something a bit different. So, um, you know, I've always booked, I've, I've always liked, I really like having magicians. So, you know, that some of the magic acts on the circuit, like Mandy Mewden and um, Alan Hudson and um, Sean Hayden and uh, Wayne the Weird, people like people like that, I think are great. If you've got a bill, rather than just having four straight stand-ups or, or musical acts as well, um, you know, I, I always try wherever possible to have either a musical act or a, or a magic act or something that's a bit of a novelty act that breaks up just having all stand-ups on a bill. I think it, it makes it a more interesting night. One thing I'm going to do is, uh, with the podcast, I wanna, I'm going to talk to a few comedians that really sort of are, are breaking it well in both, both circuits, like the cabaret and the straight stand-up circuit. I mean, there are a few, but I've not come across many ones that are doing it. Like, I know Elf Lyons does it. Then there's sort of Zach, what's it called, Jack Tucker. He sort of does it a bit, doesn't he? And then there's... I don't know. Because I, I would like to see the difference between them. Because I, I feel maybe cabaret shows, would you say they're more sort of younger age groups? Sort of theatres, sort of middle class sort of age? Right, I've not... I've not been to a cabaret show. I've been to a few, um, um, oh, what are they called? I've, I've forgotten that, what, what they're called now. Um, oh, my brain's ha having a freeze now. Um, burlesque, yeah. Burlesque. I've been to a few burlesque shows and they often have um, a comedian on, but they, they are often, they, they, those t t tend to go for the, 
the very sort of camp drag queen kind of comedians quite often. Um, not always, but um, you know, that, that's the kind of comedy those kind of shows tend to go for. I don't quite know what you mean by cabaret. Well, I kind of know what, what you mean by cabaret night, but I've not been to one in many years. So, what, do you know Tina Turner Tea Lady? No, I think I want to though. Oh, she's amazing. She's bloody brilliant, mate. Oh, she's good. Definitely, like she she does as you say, like the Yeah. Oh, she 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 does a lot of that. She does the singing, like she does this singing thing, and then she does this little dance around where she does a Tina Turner impression. But she does a lot of the cabaret right. circuit, and she gets like she was amazing. But it, right. Whenever I see a lot of shows, like if I go to a comedy store or Top Secret, a lot of them, it's all sort of straight stand-up. And then when I go to maybe a cabaret show, it's all sort of weird, mm. wacky acts. And I'll, I want to see more, more yeah, acts well, that do both. I, I do. I totally agree. Um, I believe the comedy store um, have always been pretty anti anything that's not straight stand-up. I, I don't think they've even liked musical comedy and certainly not magic from what I... I, I gather, I think they've very much been like very pro just stand up. Whereas I've, I've really been the opposite. I've always loved to have one act on, on a bill that is not straight stand up. I think it just gives it, you know, I, th I think it makes it better. And the more varied the bills are, the better. I mean, it's not always easy when, you know, particularly, um, I think in London, you've, you've probably got more, more diversity, but it, yeah. it, it can be difficult not to end up with four white straight males on a, on a bill, um, because that is what probably 80% of the circuit it's... is. And <laughs> you know, there's not, not much availability. Um, you know, you, you, most promoters want diverse bills, um, and it, it can be difficult uh, to, to do it. And, you know, if you, you obviously you want to book the best bill you can, um, but you also want to book a diverse bill and, it, it, it's tricky to do that with with you know with what's available sometimes because well i would love to see it at one of the gong shows i mean like you remember that italian guy like he did a lot of pauses and then he got laughs like <laughs> he paused for like a yeah. minute and then he beat the gong but i, I want to see more sort of completely mad acts do your gong show or any gong show like and, and pass it but when i've seen a lot of them do it it seems to be yeah. people put off by them I think in the old days of alternative comedy, you've got quite a lot of these kind of madcap acts. The problem with those kind of acts is they are very Marmite. Um, you know, some of the audience will really go with it. Others just really, what the hell's this? Um, and it can happen from gig to gig. I've seen acts, I mean, in the Midlands, there's a guy, um, Roger Swift, who uses loads of props. And I've seen him absolutely smash gigs. I've seen him totally die. And I've seen him quite a lot of times completely smash a gig and die at the same time, which is... <laughs> and the more sort of out there you are, you know, I've seen him literally smash it to half the audience and die to the other half on the same night. Um, that, that can happen. Whereas, you know, it can sort of stop people trying to be a bit different and original. Um, but... It, it's yeah it's more niche when you're doing really kind of alternative comedy you're, you you may find a certain audience that will go for it but if you're playing across you know all the clubs you will if you're doing something that's kind of quite left field you're gonna have to prepare yourself to die quite often because some audiences might love it but others will absolutely not and you're gonna have to have a thick skin to be able to cope with the nights when you're gonna gonna die i mean eddie izzard i gather died rather a lot of times before he you know um found his audience or found his style um but you know that's that's going to happen if you're if you're kind of a left field different kind of act what's the story that was about eddie Izzard? because i hear that he was called rubbish eddie for 10 years i mean how much of that is true I, I'm, I'm not too sure what to make of that <clears throat> i'm not I'm not really, um, I, I don't, don't really know that much about him at all. Um, it's, he's not really my, my sort of comedy at all. Um, you know, he, he, I mean, he's, I say he's a prime sort of Marmite kind of act, really. Massively, massively popular 
with with his fans but you know he's not he's not going to appeal to everybody by any means and one thing that is quite interesting like you say a lot of comedy clubs and a lot of comedian promoters across the country like they really say what the hell are you doing london like with all these bringing gigs so maybe to sort of help with the issue of that like what advice do you have for comedy clubs so they can keep an audience coming in so they build a community and they come in so they don't think oh i can't get people in and i have to do a bring a gig um i think there are i'm gonna say london seems to be very different i i've never i've run four or five times i've tried running gigs in london and none of them have ever worked so uh, london seems to be a bit of a different kettle of fish to the rest of the country um but i mean i most of the places i go are places with ready audiences already so i think one of the most important things if you're trying to find a gig to run somewhere is go somewhere that's already popular that does events so if you've got I think it's good if you go to a pub or somewhere that already does tribute bands, live music, if they're known for live events and they've maybe got their own Facebook groups already for live events, it's much easier to get them into a comedy night than if you go somewhere where that's maybe not a particularly popular place or that doesn't do live events otherwise. Um, you need to go somewhere where the regular clientele of that place are the type of people you'd want to have in a comedy night. Because then if you can get the people that maybe drink in the pub to go upstairs into your function room. It's a hell of a lot easier to get them to do that than it is to try and bring an audience into a pub they maybe don't know already. People are creatures of habit. And it's much harder to get them to go to a venue they don't know than it is to get them to go up into an upstairs room of a pub they already frequent. So I think finding the right venue makes it much easier to attract an audience. Um, but for me, the biggest the biggest thing about a successful night is repeat business. If you have a really, really good night, um, people will come back. And what I do at a lot of my bigger clubs is I do a two pound discount if they book on the night for the following month. And I, some nights I get two thirds of the audience will book for the following month um, because they know it's a great show. And also they don't care who's on because they know it's always going to be a good show. So if you put a good lineup on, um, They'll, they'll keep coming back to it. But obviously, also open mic level, if you're gonna do an open mic sort of show, you've got to put on good open mic acts. You've got to look at the videos. If you just put your mates on, whether they're good or not, you're gonna have a bad show. I mean, you can t if you're putting seven or eight acts on, you've got to make sure that at least five of them are gonna be good. You know, people will tolerate on a cheap night one or two acts dying, but if five or six die, it's going to be a terrible night that no one wants to come back to. And if they're just there as hostages just to support their mate and everyone's terrible, it's going to be an awful night that no one wants to come back to. So, you know, really, I would say try and set up a gig, you know, get a couple of acts on that maybe are new that will bring some friends along, but don't force them to do it um, and get, you know, four or five acts that are good and get a headliner on that's decent. So even if it means, I mean, in London, you can get a good headliner for, you know, 30 quid or something. Um, but just make sure the night ends on a high with a strong 15 or 20 minute act to close it. So even if you've had a couple of deaths, the night ends on a high. But if you put like 15 acts on doing five minutes and 10 of them are terrible, God, it's going to be an insufferable night. No one will come back. Oh, to yeah. <laughs> I know. Yes, I've been through many of them. And it's, it's one. I mean, being a promoter must be extra, is extra hard as well, especially if you're hosting, because you have the pressure of it. Like, if it doesn't go bad, if it goes badly and you're hosting, it's your fault. And also, it's so much hard work sometimes when someone bombs to lift it back up. <laughs> but Yeah, I mean, this is the thing with a gong show. I mean, my gong shows, I give everyone a two minute grace. So they get a chance to establish themselves. Um, but if an act's terrible, they'll, they'll get gonged off and, you know, you get all the music to energise the, the room a bit. Um, but if, if, an, if an act is going for five or ten minutes with no gong and they're getting no laughs, it can absolutely sap the, the energy out of the room. So, I mean, I, I think the gongs are, are a much better way of doing it because they're entertaining for the audience, even if quite a few of the acts aren't very good. 
the you know the gonging and the the audience feel engaged because they get to vote um i, I think it's a much better way of doing it because you get an audience you know yeah you know some acts will will have traveled a fair way and only get two minutes but they're getting two minutes in front of a proper comedy audience you know most of our gong shows have got 50 people in them that are keen and enthusiastic and usually at our gongs at least half the acts make it through the five minutes um so it's it's a good show audiences always say they enjoy it and you know you can give stage time to 15 people so if you run it well and make it fair don't you know the comedy store is an institution and you know that but i don't think anyone else should be running gong shows like that um you know i think you need to support new acts and give them a chance but you've got to make it entertaining for the audience as well giving them everyone you know five or ten minutes stage time and then you know sucking the energy out of the room because they're not very good it's not entertainment you've got to balance between giving it giving the the access you know some stage time some quality stage time to quality audience but making it entertaining that's why i think you know a fair and friendly gong show um is a good balance yeah that's a good point <clears throat> so now yeah i mean how, when did you feel that you were you were building your base like when did you feel like when you were setting up shows and building it when when we, was the point where you feel i've got a community at funhouse and like who really love what we do when did you notice that well yeah i mean it's, it's sort of funhouse is one big thing with lots of clubs it's all kind of a load of separate things really so you've got different clubs with different kind of vibes my longest running one is derby blessington which has been running for about 18 years now and you know, we've always had a good number of regulars that come every fortnight on a Monday night. And, um, you know, they always see the up and coming acts. We've had so many acts there that, you know, are on telly now. But we that is one where we just do like a sort of 50 pound headliner and five or six acts doing 10 spots. But they're all acts who I've seen videos of and I know good acts and a lot of them are showcasing um, to get seen and get higher paid, you know, get proper paid gigs out of it. And you know, you, you feel a bit of a community gig. If you get a lot of regulars coming, so that's the most important thing. Collect email addresses, encourage them to join your, your Facebook group. And if you can create that kind of community where, where they, you know, they get to know other regulars there, that is an important thing. It's all about, the most important thing about comedy nights is getting people who will come every show. If you can build that kind of feeling of it being a nice, friendly place to go and that there'll always be a good show on, um, even though they don't know who's on, then you've got you're onto a winner. I'm going to have to wrap up soon, Marvin. Actually, okay. I've got to no got to do some work. No worries. Uh, have we got <laughs> any final question or? or are we, are we yes, doing? there's two more questions. Well, three because I I want you you can plug all your stuff on as well. I'll let us know about that. But um, okay, the, the two questions are: what who is your hero, and what is a quote you'd like to live the rest of your life by? <laughs> um, well, probably my, my, my comedy hero, really, I, I guess, will be Rod Gilbert. Um, I absolutely love his, his, his comedy, but um, he's done loads and loads of tour warm-ups at my clubs, and he's a really, really lovely guy. And it's been amazing seeing him working, because he stayed at my flat quite a few times when he's done a run of um, previews. and. His, his work ethic is just unbelievable. He'll come and do an hour preview for, a sh for an Edinburgh show or a tour show, and it'll be amazing. Anyone else would think, wow, phenomenal. And then the next day, he'll spend the time going through the video, going through it with a tooth comb, changing loads of bits, rewriting bits, and you'll see him like 24 hours later with like 10 or 15 minutes changed and learned perfectly and improved like, 20% better than it was the night before. And then he'll do it again the next night and have changed loads more. So seeing his work ethic at, at such close quarters has been uh, amazing. And, and he's just such a phenomenally talented act as well. So um, yeah, he, 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 gets my, he gets my vote. Okay. And what is a quote you like to live the rest of your life by? <laughs> uh, a quote, oh my god. Um, 
I don't know. I can't, I, I'd have to have a think about that. I don't want to leave, leave it for five minutes for your audience to get bored <laughs> watching my brain clogs working. Um, no, I'd, I'd have had to have had some warning on that one. I haven't <laughs> really got one um, uh, particularly, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm generally quite a, be positive. I think, I think you, even when there's a lot of negativity in the world, I mean, there has been, been a hell of a lot in the last few years, but you know, Trump, Trump, Trump's gone. We can be positive about that. There's a vaccine, let's be <laughs> positive about that. Um, there will be a problem circuit. You know, it, it's, it's been a, a doom and gloom year massively, but you know, the, the, the end of this year has got a whole load better with Trump going and the vaccine. And let's hope that we can now get on a, a more positive um, role now. I, I think Trump going well, it's going to have a knock-on effect on the on the whole world and create a more sort of positive environment. Hopefully, so let's let's hope things things can only get better. We'll 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 go out on that. Okay, and oh, you oh, you got one more thing. Yeah, go just on. what would you? Is there anything you like to plug on the podcast? Well, Funhouse Comedy normally has about forty clubs running. Uh, between we have a few in Gloucestershire and Northamptonshire and lots in Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire, Leicestershire, Lincolnshire um, and Sheffield as well. So um, we will, as soon as, once the tiers are announced this week, any, venue, any towns in tier one and two, we will try and run shows in. And then when we get back to normal, we'll be back in all of the locations, hopefully, and uh, hopefully bringing some laughter and cheer to everybody out there. Yeah. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> Cheers, Marvin. Thank you very much. And Good to speak take to care. you.